In 2018, there was an article published in the New York Times about this. I'm assuming we're all familiar with this painting, Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. And the article, written by a journalist by the name of Scott Rayburn, was particularly interested in the phenomenon that this painting has come to be. Has anyone here actually been to the Louvre in Paris to see the Mona Lisa? Show of hands. Oh, way more than I thought. Fantastic. And so, if you are one of the not-so-few people who have been there to see it, you'll know that, for I'm assuming most of you, to, to witness this in the flesh, you usually have to wait in a really long line. According to the stats I found, on average, 30,000 people enter into the Louvre each day, 99% of whom are there to see that particular painting. And so when you have that volume of people entering one space, typically you get these really long lines. And the funny thing about it is when you finally wait your turn in this line and get into the room where this painting is being held, this is what you get. A really mediocre view of a painting whilst you are herded like cattle by security to snap your photo and get out of the way for the next thousands of people to walk into the room. And so, the interesting part about this article is that the, the journalist, Scott, interviews people who are waiting in the line and asks them, why are you here? Why have you waited in this line for, to see the Mona Lisa firsthand? And as you can imagine, the answers varied. For one individual, it was because they were a big fan of Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Uh, for, for many, it was because that's just what you do when you're visiting Paris. For others, it was to get a picture for Instagram. Because if you don't post a picture of yourself with the Mona Lisa in Paris, were you really in Paris? There happened to be an art historian in the line. And it was an art historian who specifically looked at, he studied the types of paint used on canvas paintings throughout the centuries. And so, yeah, he was there to see the Mona Lisa. He was really more interested, though, in the type of paint that Leonardo used. Uh, unfortunately for him, no one told him that he was going to get nowhere near close enough to analyze the type of paint. But as you consider these reasons for people standing in line to experience the Mona Lisa for themselves, it's hard not to notice that their reasons for, for being there and doing so are entirely disconnected from what the Mona Lisa actually is, right? From, from why Leonardo da Vinci painted it, from what it represented in his body of work, from what his original audience would have thought of it, from what he was trying to communicate in painting it. Yes, it's a painting, but often artists are trying to convey a message in their work. But none of that has to do with most of the 30,000 people that are standing in line each and every day to experience it. Do you see the disconnect between why it was painted and why 30,000 people every day are going to encounter it? And so, why does this matter to us? It doesn't really. It's a painting. If you want to travel halfway across the world for a new profile picture, you be my guest. But 
much like the Mona Lisa has become this phenomenon, uh, one that some of us have experienced, but lots of us will never will, um, so too is this, a phenomenon that each and every one of us will encounter, and a phenomenon that much more than 30,000 people each and every day are going to be picking up and experiencing. Why they do so? Well, answers also may vary. Because some people find it interesting, some people not, but some people find it interesting. Um, because that's what Christians are meant to do. Because I come to church, and that's what we do at church. Uh, to learn about God and his character. To sharpen my worldview. Uh, because it makes me feel good. There's a sense of peace when I open up these words in the scriptures. And the difference between the reason why you wait in line to see the Mona Lisa and the reason you open the scriptures is that the reason definitely matters because this book was both written and passed down for a reason. And when you go to it, looking for something that it's not trying to provide you, A, that leaves you susceptible to drawing conclusions that this book is not trying to draw, but it also, you risk missing the thing that it's so desperately wanting you to notice and to see, and most importantly, experience. And so, when you're dealing with a text that's quite literally about life and death, you can see why that might be a problem or why we might want to avoid that. And so, the reason I start our time today sharing on this is because today is day one of a six-week series that we're going to be doing through the book of Jonah. And Jonah is a book that a lot of us are already familiar with, but there's a variety of reasons why we thought it was worth our time, which I will cover in a moment. But what we thought was crucial for today, at the onset of this series, before we just like dive into the next thing and unpack the next passage of scripture that we want to look at, we thought it was worth our time just to take a breath, pause, and consider, why are we waiting in line? Or maybe why should we be waiting in line? What is it that the scriptures are wanting us to experience in going to them so that when we do go to them, we can actually experience it. The book of Jonah is really short. It's like, in most of our Bibles, a page and a half at the most. But it's a page and a half about a prophet of an ancient civilization that probably lived roughly 3,000 years ago that went through life circumstances that I highly doubt any of us will have to go through or at least I hope we won't have to go through. But I can't emphasize enough that if you don't go to that story with the right heart posture or the right expectations, the book of Jonah does have the potential to be a big, fat waste of all of our time. It does. I'm assuming you didn't anticipate me saying that, but it does have the potential to be a wildly mediocre experience. But it doesn't have to. Because I believe that if you do go to it with the proper expectations and the correct heart posture, then this page and a half has things for us in abundance. And so next week, we will be turning to Jonah chapter 1. But for today, we're going to look at Second Timothy chapter 3. So if you haven't yet turned to that, 
I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses starting at verse 14. Now, as you do that, 2 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, uh, written to his apprentice Timothy. And in this letter, Paul is generally encouraging Timothy to press on in the faith that he had found, um, to carry out his ministry with a level of urgency, and to warn him of some of the challenges that he was going to encounter in this ministry. And in chapter 3, verse 14, he, Paul, writes this. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures. We'll pause there. Once again, Paul is encouraging Timothy to press on in the faith that he had found. A, because the people who had taught him this faith, presumably, based on these words, were trustworthy people, but also because the faith that Timothy had found came through his engagement in the Holy Scriptures. All right? It wasn't just a general faith that Timothy had found, it was the faith that he found. And so it comes to no surprise to Paul that Timothy found this faith through his engagement in the scriptures, because according to Paul, what we're going to see next, that's what they're meant to do. Verse 14, right? From infancy, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So according to Paul, The scriptures, which again, for them at this particular moment, their view of scriptures was our Old Testament. And so Paul says the scriptures, they communicate a message or a story that should lead the reader to some kind of experience. And the story that it communicates, again, thinking our brains, thinking Old Testament, is that something has happened to humanity that we are in need of rescue from. That word salvation, you could just translate to rescuing. And so something's happened to us that we need to be rescued from, that we cannot rescue ourselves from. The scriptures call that sin. And this story also communicates that rescue will become available when somebody eventually comes and does something on our behalf. So by the time you get to the Old Testament, as the reader, you should see this gaping job description that's waiting to be filled. And so, as someone like Timothy in this instance reads through that story, they, and as they contemplate then the person and the work of Jesus Christ, they should be struck with their own need of saving and should be led to experience their own saving or salvation by putting their faith in the person that did come and did something on their behalf. Or phrased another way, as Paul does, that they should come to experience salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, which was the case for Timothy. And so, Paul continues, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. Yes, it was written by humans, but it is written by humans under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's almost the byproduct of this divine human partnership. Uh, Much more could be said on that. We're going to tiptoe around that one for this morning. And I want to draw our attention to what Paul says next, because it's as he's 
writing to Timothy, someone who has found salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, Paul goes on here to tell Timothy what he should now be using this book for. And now that Paul's words, coming to our perspective, Paul's words have now become a part of Scripture, this is essentially Scripture claiming for itself what it wants to be used for by those who have found salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And it says this, that all Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. It's for teaching, right? This book provides us with information that's just worth knowing. But it's not just information that's meant to fill our heads with knowledge. The scriptures are meant to rebuke. Or depending on what English translation you have, they're meant to reproof or convict Right? As the reader, we're meant to take the information presented to us and almost allow it to speak into our lives and to reveal the error of our ways. The writer of Hebrews puts it similarly, that the scriptures are like a double-edged sword that are quite literally meant to pierce us and cut us open and expose our deepest longings and desires. But once again, the scriptures don't want to leave us with that. They want to show us the path forward. They want to correct us, present to us the path forward. They want to reveal the character and the nature of God and then invite us to live in accordance with that character and nature because that's literally the reason we were created to be and to do, to bear the image and the likeness of our creator. Or put another way, as Paul does, to train us in righteousness or godliness or teach us to do what is right. So that, verse 17, this is kind of Paul's summary statement, so that the servant of God, right, the person who has found salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, do we see what's happening here? This is scripture claiming of itself that it is a means to an end, but it itself is not the end. And so as followers of Jesus, we don't read the Bible just for the sake of reading the Bible or just for the sake of knowing it well or being able to recite it well. We read the Bible to allow the Holy Spirit to use it to transform us into the kinds of people that God created us to be, or in Paul's words, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The evangelist D.L. Moody puts it this way, the Bible was not given for information, for our information, but for our transformation. And so yes, it is information, uh, but it doesn't want to just be information. It wants us to take the information presented and in partnership with the Holy Spirit, use it to transform us into the kind of people that God created us to be. Now, as I look out into the room, I see a variety of faces and, and know lots of your stories and different places that you've come from and different stages of our discipleship to Jesus. And so some of us have spent our whole lives reading this book. 
And some of us are just getting to know this book, which we are thrilled that you're making that decision. But if you are someone that has spent your life devoted to this book, you've probably learned, as I certainly have, that if you don't go to the scriptures willing and ready and interested and open to transformation, then transformation doesn't often happen. And I say often because I do believe God can penetrate my hard or misguided heart when I go into the scriptures. If I go into it with the wrong reasons, I do believe God can still get through to me. But in my experience, I will say more often than not, that's not often the case. And more often than not, without the right heart posture, at least for me, the scriptures become less of a double-edged sword and more words on a page that I still find myself reading. Uh, but I find myself reading them because I think history is interesting because that's what Christians do, because that's definitely what pastors do. And I don't want to be the pastor that's got, that gets caught not really knowing his Bible well. Um, because I see these very hot topic issues out in the world. And I really want to be able to articulate a coherent answer to some of those questions based on an Orthodox Christian worldview. Um, and none of those reasons for reading the scripture are wrong. They're actually all really good. They're just not the ultimate thing that the scriptures are wanting to do to us and for us. Which, again, in Paul's words to Timothy, were to equip us for every good work. Or in Paul's words to the Corinthians, transforming us into the likeness of Jesus Christ, right? Not just consuming our minds with information, but actually transforming our very being from the inside out into the likeness of Jesus Christ with ever-increasing glory. And so if I, Jacob Piro, want to experience that, I have to not just open my Bible, I have to open my Bible ready and willing to allow it to do the thing that it wants to do to me, to teach me, to rebuke me, to correct me, and to train me in righteousness. And as I think about those four words that Paul presents to us, I think the heart posture that he's ultimately inviting us into as we engage in the scriptures is the heart posture of a student. Someone who knows that they are not the authority figure here. Somebody who knows that they are in need of growth or improvement in ways that they haven't even comprehended yet. But also someone who's willing to humble themselves under the authority of scripture or under the authority of another to experience the growth and the improvement that they seek. And so to be students of the word, yes, it means we have to open it and we have to read it, but it also means that we need to consciously humble ourselves under its authority, under the authority of God's divinely inspired word, to experience the growth and the improvement and to correct and train us to be the kinds of people that God created us to be, that we see revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Now, that's a lot easier said than done. It's really easy for me to stand up here and say that. Uh, I can tell you from firsthand, it's it's a lot, a lot harder than it is just to say, right? To allow the scriptures to expose the worst in us uh, is not easy, right? It requires a lot of intention. It requires a lot of reflection. Um, it requires us to read slowly. It requires a whole lot of humility. Um, it's often uncomfortable, right? It's not, I don't think most of us are love being presented with the worst in ourselves or like to acknowledge that. But I think it's when we're willing to do that, that God's spirit actually has the opportunity to take that and to transform us and to transform whatever it is that's revealed into something that is so much better. And so when I, when I, I see transformation as the end goal and transformation is what's being offered in opening the Bible, then to me, there is no more compelling reason to actually pick up this book each and every day and to see what it has on offer. Are you with me? Yeah. So Jonah, seamless transition. Jonah. There are a number of reasons why we thought Jonah would be a great series for us as a church. Uh, number one, we haven't just like picked, th- picked a book of the Bible and worked through it in quite a while. So we thought we'd do that. Um, the series we're, we're most recently coming off of was a series called Rise Up. And what are the opening words of Jonah? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, rise up. So seamless transition. Um, but maybe most importantly... Jonah is the perfect story to work through to teach us and show us how to read the Bible for transformation. Because in this story, we are confronted with some of the worst parts of human nature seen in the person of Jonah. There are some that think Jonah is like one of the heroes of the faith. No, Jonah is the anti-hero. And you'll come to see that as we work through it. And the author of Jonah's story, who's not Jonah, it's an unnamed writer, uses, I'll say, every tool in a storyteller's toolbox to invite the reader into the narrative and to almost see Jonah in themselves and does everything he possibly can implicitly to ask us the question, so what are we going to do with that? There's some who referred to Jonah as a type of satirical comedy, uh, which I find interesting, um, where the author takes an issue that's kind of prevalent in a, in a, in a culture, but that you know, everyone's prone to, but no one really likes to acknowledge, dial it up to like 100 and then present the situation in almost like a comedic way. And the thing with good satire, if you're familiar with Saturday Night Live, you'll know this. The thing with good satire is that the audience usually starts by laughing because the situation that's being presented to them is outrageous. But the longer they sit with the story and they reflect on the story, there's usually this unspoken, internal, oh shoot moment where they realize the story is not actually that crazy and that it's kind of about them. And so in that sense of the matter, Jonah is really good satire. And so I think it's going to help us to treat the Bible 
as Trent for transformation reasons. But, as our friend Paul reminded us this morning, if we want to get out of Scripture what Scripture wants us to get, then we have to go to it with the heart posture of a humble student. And so, to close our time this morning, I want to present to us uh, a few invitations. Uh, Really simple, really tangible things that I think all of us can do, um, both to prepare our hearts for engaging in the scriptures here on Sunday morning, but also just in general on your own, as you prepare your heart to engage in the scriptures each and every day. And again, these are invitations I'd love it if you took them, but take them or leave them as you see fit. So number one, read through Jonah this week. The whole thing. It's a page and a half. Familiarize yourself with the narrative. As I work us through this series, I'm going to kind of assume most of us are familiar with the narrative, so it'll be helpful if you are. And I'll say pay part, maybe pay particular attention to details maybe you've never noticed before. Uh, for most of us, We're first presented with the story of Jonah in Sunday school, in like a children's book, or via Veggie Tales. And whilst all of those means do a valiant effort at presenting the story of Jonah, I will say that they grossly misrepresent specifically chapters 2 and chapters 4 of the story. So maybe pay particular attention to those two chapters. Um... But I don't want you to just read it. Before you sit down to read it, I would love it. Just an invitation. Spend like five minutes just in quiet. I know that might be hard for some of us to find throughout the week, but I think at some point we can find a few minutes of quiet. And I would invite you to just sit. um, Acknowledge that you sit in the presence of God. And as you sit there and try to focus in, if you're a human, you'll inevitably be distracted by something that comes across your mind. And so I invite you not to just try and ignore it, but acknowledge before God that whatever it is, if it's a situation that you're having to deal with at work or with your family, if it's something in the physical room that you're sitting in that's distracting to you, acknowledge before God that that's just what it's doing. And that maybe it is something that does need to be addressed with God. But for right now, I'm just going to set it aside. And sit in the presence of God. And then when the next thing ultimately comes across your minds, I invite you to acknowledge that before the Lord, that it's distracting you, and that I might have to deal with it at some point. But for this time being, I'm just going to mentally set it aside. Just keep going through this pattern until until you feel like you're ready to engage in Jonah. And when you feel like you're ready, you're still not ready. And I would invite you to read the final words of Psalm 139. Really slowly, and maybe a few times. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I don't know of better words to better posture our hearts before engaging in the scriptures than those ones. So write that down. 
Psalm 139, the last few verses. And then read through Jonah. Number two. Come next week, ready to stay engaged. Or every week, ready to stay engaged. As I have spent some time studying the book of Jonah, it may be one, one and a half pages, but it is an action-packed one and a half pages. And so as your preacher, I fully recognize that it is my responsibility to honor both your time and your attention spans and to be selective with what needs to be shared. Um, If I may be so bold as to say, you also have a responsibility here. And your responsibility is to come ready to listen and to stay engaged. And so there are a variety of things that one could do to make that happen. You could bring notes to take while you're listening. For some people, that's helpful. For some, not so much. Uh, Maybe it's setting your alarm a couple minutes earlier so that you arrive here not so frantically. Um, Maybe it's getting a better night's sleep on Saturday night so you're a little bit more attentive on Sunday morning. Maybe it's pushing your comfort zone ever so slightly and just sitting in a different place in the room. If you've drawn yourself to one particular place, sometimes just sitting in a different place keeps you a little bit more on edge and aware to what's going on around you, which might be helpful for keeping you a little bit more engaged. Whatever you need to do and what might be helpful, I invite you to do that. In the interest of transparency, let's just say it as it is so there's no surprises. Uh, There's no 20-minute sermons in this series. Uh, There's no 50-minute sermons. Don't worry. I will honor your time. Um, But the 20-minute sermons, it's not happening. So if we need to do something to absolutely maximize to the best of our ability our intention spans, all I, I boldly invite you to do whatever that might be. Don't hate me for saying that. Number three, radical idea. Bring a Bible. And I, I do mean a physical Bible. I could speak for another four hours on why I think the practice of bringing a physical Bible to church, not always, but can be, if done intentionally, a really helpful exercise. I won't, but I will say that if our desire is to humble and su- humble and submit ourselves under the authority of the scriptures, then I do think bringing a physical Bible to church is one of the easiest and the most tangible things to position our heart well before we engage in it. Because, we've said this before, the things you do, do something to you. And I think going out of your way on a Sunday morning to go and find one and bring it, and almost inconveniencing yourself from having to carry it around all morning, can be a fantastic exercise to remind us, both consciously when we go and we grab it, but also subconsciously as we carry it around of the value and the authority that this book does carry with it and that it's just a book that's worth inconveniencing myself ever so slightly to carry around with me. As I was uh, thinking this week about how strongly I wanted to make point number three, again, it's just an invitation. Um, I was struck with the thoughts and the fact that we live in a generation 
particularly I'll say those of us that grew up in the digital age, so maybe those of us that are slightly younger, um, with easier access to scripture than ever before. All I have to do is pull up my phone and it's there. Um, we also represent a generation that this is a generalization, um, so I'm not calling anyone out here, but I think if I think of the, the church at large in the Western worlds, I think we represent a generation that might have the lowest reverence for scripture as well. And I don't think that's a coincidence because it is really hard to treat scripture with the reverence that it is due when all it is to us is another app on our phone. Now, there are wonderful benefits to it being an app on our phone and the digitization and the accessibility of scripture, I will say, is a, is a benefit and a blessing in almost, I'll probably say, in every other way. There are so many more benefits. But, again, if our desire is to posture our hearts well before we engage in the scriptures, specifically thinking on a Sunday morning, then I do think intentionally going out of our way to bring one of these is ever so slightly more helpful uh, than just relying on a PowerPoint screen or pulling out our phones, which we already had on us. Take it or leave it. Just a thought. Last one. The last invitation I present to you as to how to posture our hearts. Well, um, don't tilt the mirror. Got it? Allow me to explain. Most of us, I think, when we listen to a sermon or open the Bible and read it, our minds are very quick to see how that particular passage of Scripture might expose the worst in somebody else, uh, and less so ourselves. And so every week when we, when we open this book and we engage in the story of Jonah and identify his shortcomings, we're going to be using the story almost like a mirror to see if there's any trace of Jonah in ourselves. And so when we do this, we need to make sure that that mirror remains directed at us and that we aren't taking it and tilting that mirror towards our spouse or our neighbor or our friends or our pastor or our child or our parents. And the reason I think we need to guard against that tendency is not necessarily because you're wrong in your evaluation. Sometimes we're right in our evaluation. I think we need to guard against that tendency because I'll say without fail, the church tends to run into problems when its disciples are more concerned with the behavior of others than their own behavior. And I think it's no wonder that in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, when he's presenting his vision for life in the kingdom of God, he criticizes those who are quick to identify the speck of dust in a brother or a sister's eye and ignore the plank of wood in their own eye. And so, let us be on our guard against that just innate tendency and to keep that mirror directed at ourselves as we work through the story of Jonah. And last thing I'll say is that I, I recognize that that might sound a little bit individualistic, as if it's like, doesn't matter what other people are doing. I'm just going to focus on me. Um, that's not my intent to communicate that message by any chance. Um, 
I really like Robert Mulholland's definition of spiritual formation. He says it's the process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. And so, yes, our spiritual formation and our walk with Jesus definitely has advantages to ourselves. But Christian spiritual formation is for the sake of others. So that others out there, this is so cool that we get to be invited to do this, but it's so that others out there get to experience the life of Christ through their engagement with us. And so, yes, there are certainly benefits that come to us, but in suggesting to keep the mirror directed at ourselves, I'm not suggesting that that our, our walk with Jesus isn't about others. It's definitely about others. I think in my suggestion in, in guarding against that tendency is to say, far greater than giving the world a person who knows their Bible is giving the world a person who through the power of the Holy Spirit has been deeply shaped and formed by their Bible into a person who resembles the God that we know our world so desperately needs. Amen? I think that's enough for me today. Join me in prayer.